rock and roll. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is another episode of That Record Got Me High. I am your host, Rob Elba. And it is wonderful to have you all here with us on this fine Tuesday evening. Usually we do Wednesday, but I'm all about the guests. So if a guest wants to do it, if it's more convenient for a different night, then, you know, I'm, I'm on board with that. And I have a very special guest, someone I've known a really long time, haven't seen. I'm excited. I'm seeing him now in Zoom, and it's the first time I've seen... When was the last time I saw you, Ralph? I don't even know. God, it's got to be it 30 years, 20 years. Reunion. That that last that that quit reunion, I think. I didn't make the quit reunion. Well, the uh, one before, the reunion before, before that. The, before that, maybe. <laughs> All right, but anyway, let's welcome to the show, no further ado, Mr. Ralph. Avalaro, welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great big, having you on. Big fan of the podcast, I've got to tell you. I love I love what you've been doing. Awesome. Well, that's great to hear. Ralph is in Los Angeles, California. And I have, Ralph, I'm just going to put what you, uh, I have that you're the principal partner at New Reach Consulting, right? Yep. I have my own consulting company. There you go, New Reach Consulting. But uh, you used to work for Universal Music Group. But I know, and I know Ralph from uh, DJ at, at WVUM, uh, the, the, the voice of University of Miami. And that's right. He managed one of the greatest South Florida uh, punk bands ever. Quit. And for a hot minute, he even managed my band for a, <laughs> for a minute, uh, the Holy Terrors right. in the nineties. Uh, so it's great. Uh, he's a great. The Holy Terrors. There you go. <laughs> so how you doing, Ralph? I'm good. I'm really excited to talk about Led Zeppelin. I know, and it's so funny because you said, and I swear, I didn't do that on purpose. Like, like uh, a while ago, I, I said, "Oh, Ralph, you got to come on the show," and, and you said right away, "This is I want to do uh, Led Zeppelin for." And then I did. For those of you who are patrons, uh, you, uh, I do newsletters. I do these newsletters, and in one, I just sort of put out there. Should I even be doing like records that are like these, you know, classic records that everyone knows that have been talked about? And one of the examples I put was <laughs> Led Zeppelin 4. So Ralph, he messaged me, he goes, wait, uh, does this mean we're not doing it now? And it's like, no, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> and actually, uh, Ralph, I got, uh, I got feedback from people and just, and all of them said, no, no, that's fine. Do whatever the guest does because... You know, uh, who cares that a million people talk about a record? Someone's going to bring their own perspective to it, and, you know, who cares? So uh, it's fine. Yeah, this is this is a tough record to do because, you know, everybody has talked about this record for 50 years. So. Right. And also everyone knows, even, even if you're not a Zeppelin fan or a Rock, everyone knows this record, you know? That's right. It's sort of one of these things that becomes, it goes beyond, it almost goes beyond just, like, rock music and it goes it becomes something else it becomes part of the culture of the whole culture and it's something you know stairway to heaven i mean you know <laughs> who doesn't know stairway to heaven and either you know some people may oh i hate that song i'm sick of it or i love that song and and all right so ralph this is uh, what i'm interested in is because i think we're around the same age you're younger i think you may be a little younger than me when did you, like, were you on board with Zeppelin when you were, like, really young, or did you discover them later, or what's your Led Zeppelin story? No, my, Zeppelin really, I go back to, it, it. it's what I grew up with. It, it's, my dad saw Zeppelin in 77, so I was born in 68, right, and my mom got me into music at age seven into the I my first instrument was the recorder and at eight I started playing the clarinet so I learned how to read and write 
music, you know, on a wind instrument. And so my dad saw Zeppelin in 77. My first thing really was in 75 with music. So I was flipping through my dad's record collection, you know, looking at Zeppelin II and uh, Jethro Tull and uh, all these great classic rock records from an early, early age. So for me, when I started playing guitar, it, it you know, all I wanted to do was to learn how to play Stairway to Heaven. Right. And it was really to please my dad, right? It was to impress my dad. Ah, okay. So, so I grew up with Zeppelin. I, my very first guitar teacher when I was, you know, trying to learn how to play guitar, you know, the very first thing he started playing was rock and roll. Like, that was the first... And I was like, okay, I'm oh, signing nice. up for this guy. <laughs> right. So, for me, it was from the get-go. And uh, I'll never forget my, the first time my uh, my mom gave me an, a, a nylon string guitar, and I, I didn't have, you know, I had all time, types of time on my hands. Uh, my mom was going to, to Yale, and, you know, my, my parents got divorced, and so I had tons of time to just try to figure out the guitar. And the first thing that I tried to figure out was the intro to Stairway. So for me, it's from moment one. Right. So, all right, well, so what I was going to ask you, did you ever have a point? Because I know when I met you, you were into, you know, alternative music, punk music, all this stuff. Did you ever, ever have a point where you sort of put Zeppelin to the side or didn't, you know, sort of, you know, uh, took a break on them? And uh, that's that's like old stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, all right. Yeah, Absolutely. me too. Because, yeah, I, I, I have a similar path as you, I think. I, I'm a little older, but my older sister was like, uh, I remember when we moved to Florida in like 75 or something like that. She had House of the Holy, I guess, had come out. Her and her friends would sit around, uh, you know, smoking pot, whatever, and playing Led Zeppelin Four and House of the Holy, just like over and over again. So that just it became, you know, I, I like know every, you know, when I listen to this, like the same with you, you every note, every second of it, you know, you have in your right. Yeah, your it's psyche. a, it's it's not only a part of the cultural fabric, but it's like what we grew up with. So it got to a point where the local radio station was playing Zeppelin so much that it became uncool. Right, you know, right. So you were looking up to it, you know, as a kid. The older kids were smoking pot and having keg parties, and they knew something about Zeppelin that was, you know, some kind of secret occult, you know, Yeah, thing. right, and, exactly, yeah. And then all of a sudden, it became so over, you know, promoted on the radio that it was almost as if you know everybody was under the spell of stairway and I, and I, I remember going to college and there was a there was a radio station in Florida that only played Zeppelin 24/7 I remember that station and, I remember that station <laughs> and at this point I'm into alternative rock you know I will, I'm sort of gravitate gravitating away from the you know the classic rock stuff because you know, I'm working at the college radio station. I'm listening to, this is like the mid 80s, late 80s. You know, I'm listening to Killing Joke and, you know, Nine Inch Nails. And, right, right. Why are you doing this to 
You know, like, I think the Butthole Surfers had an album called Hairway to Steven. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I, you know, I think I went to two Butthole Surfer shows, you know, while I was in college. And, you know, we had all these groups on the air and stuff. And so it, it was really uncool to like Zeppelin was, in right? the late 80s. Yep. And, it, you know, you sort of grow out of it. But then... As you get older, you sort of come back to it like you're finding an old pair of jeans that fit you perfectly. Exactly. And you're just like, oh, my God, I just want to put these jeans back on and I want to sit back into what I grew up with. <laughs> right. And then you start looking at it from a completely different lens. You start realizing how well arranged everything was exactly. and how well composed everything was and how well produced everything was and how important they were to all of these other bands that are the next generation you know like you know like slash and jack white So many people that are influenced not just by Jimmy, but by Robert and by John Paul Jones and especially John Bonham. Like how much of an influence John Bonham had on so many drummers. And you just sort of come back to it and you start re-listening to it with a whole new adult lens. Yep. That's it. Would you, Ralph, we could end the podcast right. We could end it right here because you perfectly laid out. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That you sort of, you know, obviously you grow up loving it. But then, but like you said, there's other stuff maybe you'd grow up loving that later on you revisit and you go, ah, that's all right. It sounds kind of dated, but not with that. When you listen to Zeppelin, all you do is you get, you realize, oh my God, Jimmy Page was a genius. Like just the way he, you know, produced these and the way they, like you said, they arranged them and put it together and the sound they got it was just like no one did that before them and they influenced so much so yeah and i guess that's something maybe you you couldn't appreciate when we were listening to our other little modern rock bands you know and it, it, like you said it was so uncool for a while and i had when i was little like like i said i'm a little older so i had the jimmy i had the giant jimmy page poster in my room i learned how to play like a bar chord like a weird bar chord the way jimmy did from the my Jimmy Page poster like I learned my right. hand doing it the way I saw the way he did it with his thumb you know wrapped around the neck that way that's that's how I play right. chords from that from uh, Let's Up one yeah <laughs> no, well I think my first concert was Kiss in 1978 I saw the the Kiss nice. Alive 2 tour in New Haven <laughs> Seeing Gene as a demon spitting fire and you know spitting blood, it, it was like a car- cartoon, you know. Right. But listening to Zeppelin, you knew they were the real deal. Like they weren't 
a fake demon. They right. weren't. They were the real bad boys of rock, yep. and they were just. They had incredibly beautiful music as well. They had so many elements to them and so many sides to them, from the epic rockers to the beautiful, you know, acoustic ballads to the blues jams. You know, they just had the whole thing. Whereas so many other rock bands were one-dimensional. Even, you know, even Jethro Tull had like a very, you know, they had a sound to them. So yeah, I, I just, I just really, you know, I, I unapologetically have come back to Zeppelin and I'm, I have no problem saying, hey, I Zeppelin's my favorite band. And, you know, I think in the last... 20 years like the Foo Fighters like they're a great rock band but if you think about how influenced they were by Bonham and Page right um, you know even even the great rock bands of today are influenced by, by oh that. yeah yeah even even if they won't admit it or don't know it all right so so this record this is their fourth studio album uh not even we we all call it the zeppelin four but they didn't call it anything right they just put the symbols on it they didn't uh they didn't want to give it a, a name they didn't even put their name on the cover which is badass right there right just putting that weird picture and the symbols i mean how correct how, how it's officially is that? it's officially untitled and they weren't the first group to do that but they were one of the first groups where the where they really had to push the label for that creative uh control and that was the the great thing about peter grant their their manager was that he had negotiated with atlantic not only one of the largest advances ever to be paid by atlantic but complete control over the album packaging right so when the press really didn't give them the love that they wanted for Zeppelin 3. They were really butt hurt by all that, especially Jimmy. Right. And he and Robert sort of came up with this idea to have an anonymous album or to have the music speak for itself. And it was really the symbols that they had submitted that became the name of the album. And the label even sent the symbols out to people uh, at one point, they even didn't want to have a catalog number, but they realized if they didn't have a catalog <laughs> number, no, no one would be able to order the album from retail. Right. <laughs> and so um, it's officially untitled. And, you know, it's it's caused a lot of confusion even to this day because people, you know, they call it Zeppelin Four, They call it Zoso, Zoso yeah, the right, first exactly. symbol. They call it runes. They call it four <laughs> symbols. Exactly. So technically, I think, I think you can call it four symbols, but it's officially... Untitled. It's untitled. In 1971, um, and they recorded it at this country house in Headley. Is it pronounced Headley Grange or Headley Grange? I I, I pronounce it Headley Grange. Headley but, Grange. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Uh, yeah, it's, it was a really interesting thing. You know, back then, I think some of the great records were sort of like these live-in experiences where you went somewhere and you lived in the place so that you can write and you can have the freedom right. to come up with something on the fly. And this was something that Paige insisted on. And in fact, a lot of the ideas that came to that uh, writing session were, you know, Robert and Jimmy had done a similar thing out in the Welsh countryside in this place called Braniour, this right. other cottage where they wrote most of Zeppelin Three. They went 
back to, they they wrote a lot of that in the first the early part of 70 and then they went back to Bronier in, in October of 70 and then left there and then the that was just Robert and Jimmy and then they ended up going to Headley Grange you know in uh, November December of 70 the record was recorded partially there and at Island Studios and uh I also believe uh they they mixed it at uh, Olympic they used like four you know four or five studios you know they they had a huge debacle on the mix so they also did I, some mixing in LA I saw but. that I read something about that yeah like just about everything had to be remixed and they so they really just they, they really worked they really crafted this record I mean it's not just even though as as rock and roll as bombastic it is it, it it's a it's a crafted thing I mean Jim, Jimmy Page knows what he wants or at least has an idea what he wants to get and they really worked uh, you know they they really worked at it right absolutely well the other cool thing about it is that a lot of it was like very organic on the fly like things just sort of happened and they they brought in a mobile truck that was uh, owned by the Rolling Stones right and that had an that had a 2 inch 16 track and uh, uh i think you know a big mix down uh, tape machine, but they also had this Helios console in that truck. So like this truck sounded amazing, uh, had all kinds of capabilities and they would chill and sit around and if something, and they had instruments sort of strewn all over the place. So if an idea came up, like, you know, like the, like the, the recorders with John Paul Jones, when he, you know, he was like, I'm going to write this, part for stairway you know he had these instruments laying around right and when page wrote battle of evermore he picked up john paul jones's mandolin and just sort of started playing this very rudimentary kind of thing right you know, he, right he didn't really know the fingerings for the mandolin yeah <laughs> he knew these basic <laughs> things and just sort of banged it out and they recorded it and if you look at the track sheets on this 16 track there, there's not a lot of tracks <laughs> oh right right yeah yeah because they also there's space in here and everything it, it's funny you mentioned that because I did read about the uh, Battle of Evermore and he, he had a actually Paige had a really great quote about his technique his fingering technique he said uh, yeah. my finger picking is is uh, sort of a cross between Pete Seeger Earl Scruggs and total incompetence <laughs> right right <laughs> you know sad. because he he was great at finger picking the guitar, right? Right, so right, right. From an acoustic, so he brought his acoustic approach to playing to the mandolin. And then, if you listen, you know, you know what's so great about these deluxe editions for uh, the reissues is there's a, a beautiful non-vocal going to California where you can just sort of hear. Jimmy Page's two guitar parts and the mandolin, and you're like, wow, like it, it, you really hear the interplay between those three instruments. Right. And it, it's just so beautiful. It's so melodic. And you can sort of hear how Robert Plant wrote his melodies in between what was coming out of what John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page were doing. Right. 
Awesome. So, I mean, it really is beautiful stuff. It is. All right, let's get into this record already. Like I said, we all know it. Everyone knows it. It doesn't matter. We're going to listen to clips anyway. Great. Probably one of the one of the great openers of a record anywhere. This song, uh, you know, classic rock radio. How are you not going to turn your car stereo up when this song comes on? Let's listen to Black Dog. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move Gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove What a great riff. Oh, I know. What and a I guess, great riff. Uh, John Paul Jones, I guess, brought that in, right? Uh, I guess. Yeah, he did. He he brought that to the band, and it was one of the few riffs that, you know, really became like this huge song. But you, you got to give a lot of a lot of credit to Paige for the, the idea of doing the whole call and response and stopping. Right. You know, he, he got that idea from uh, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, and... They, uh, you know, oh well, they right? Just, the song, oh well. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Oh well. Yeah. Yep. That. That's it. I can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty, and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give the answers that you want me to. What's insane about this song is how long it took me to figure out what was going on in the timing. Oh my God, I know, because when you think, like, you could just listen to it and enjoy it, but as a musician, if you start to try and think about it... (laughs) Yeah, well, I've tried to play this song with drummer friends, and they look at me like, they're like, okay, you don't get it. You know, and then you're like, okay, yeah, you're right. I really, I've got to go back and like woodshed this with Bonham because Bonham is playing a straight 4-4 and they really, you know, when when John Paul Jones wrote this thing, he wanted to make it complicated so that it was like this linear bass line that would make it difficult for you to dance to and and make make you think about it. (laughs) Right. And... and what's interesting is like the, the the term that he came up with that I think it's he called it stomp groove where it's basically how this odd time signature is you know playing over top of uh, John Bonham's four four. I guess you know when, when it when he brought it they 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 tried a couple of different time signatures and they ultimately settled on the one that that they did which was basically some kind of 9-8 or 5-8 yeah, going back and forth weird. in between 5-8 yeah. over 4-4. Four, four. So great. in order to count yourself in and then follow where you are on that 
nine note lick, your sh the, the emphasis is constantly shifting over the one. So you really have to know what you're doing with the lick. And even the band, you know, even John Bonham like stopped doing the whole, you know, five eight thing live. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But and but and it's so great. I love how you could hear his stick trying to because he's keeping the the count going a little. And they didn't. Of course, they don't. At that point, and nothing's isolated. They could take those sticks out. So they're there, and it's just so great because it's like. Well, yeah. Even with they the sticks, the I wouldn't muting. be able to know when to jump in. <laughs> they didn't have the they didn't have that automation for the muting, right? Exactly. Right? So they just they exactly. couldn't just like completely kill it. And, and or Ralph, cut it out with Pro Tools. One other yeah. thing I read, which blew my mind, that uh, they did, uh, Jimmy Page did four separate uh, guitar tracks uh, overdubbed, but he recorded directly into like a preamp and the console. He didn't even use an amp for this. No, he didn't. Isn't that crazy? And, <laughs> no, yeah, he, from what I understand, you know, Neil Young had done this on Cinnamon Girl. I don't know whose idea it was, whether it was Andy John's idea or it was Paige's idea. But yeah, they went directly from, you know, a direct box directly into the mic pre. And then out of that mic pre, they were going into two different compressors and they were really getting all that distortion and that buzz right. out of the mic pre. And crazy. Um, personally, I think it's a little, you know, it, it, it's a little high pitchy for my ear, but... <laughs> His, even his guitar, his other guitar part, like I think his solo, he he went through a Leslie. He did it a little bit differently. Oh, he did okay. it a little. He wanted a little bit of different, of a different sound, for the for the for the lead track. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so now we get you were what you were talking about these little accident, little happy accident. This next song, rock and roll. Yeah. That that is that right? Uh, exactly. It's, yep. it's a hat. It's pure joy. And it's just coming out of like pure frustration, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk. Let's listen to it, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, I guess uh, the opening riff, based on a <laughs> Little Richard, 1957 Little Richard song, "Keep a Knocking," which we had mentioned. Actually, Sam, uh, our friend Sam Fogarino, yes. did the knack episode, and he mentioned that uh, that that that's what I forget how it came up, but that did come up. Uh, but let's listen to rock and roll.
so what's the story? What's the song that they were working on that it was getting frustrated? They were working on Four Sticks, and it was a very eclectic Indian raga kind of inspired thing. And, you know, it's 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 probably a tr- it's probably my least favorite track on the album, Four Sticks, and Bonham just was really struggling with it. And he just, I think out of frustration, busted into that intro. Um, and everybody just sort of stopped what they were doing. And Paige just started playing that lick, right? Right. And I think Robert Plant jumped in, and I think he wrote the lyrics sort of on the fly. And if you think about the lyrics, I mean, they really are just sort of like, it's been a long time since I've dot, dot, dot. Like, And he's like got three different things, and it's been a long time since Exactly, done, right? exactly. And it's like the whole song, but it's you could just sort of tell that it's like a, a pure going back to the 50s, going back to, you know, Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley right. and stuff that they all loved you know they they loved all of that music right, right. you know in addition to the blues you know they obviously had a, i mean there's so many influences on page that's well documented but what i love about this moment is how it really be it was like a moment of pure joy that came out of like this this drum intro that is like half hi hat like open hi hat and snare and Everybody that I was going to high school with knew how to play it. That was a drummer. So like, <laughs> this was one of those things that right. I played in just about every band or pickup band that I was in growing up, you know, and right. it was like, hey, what do you know? What do you know? Like, it's like we knew Twisted Shout and we knew rock and roll. Right. And we knew one of the first, you know, like you said, one of the first riffs I learned. I think I learned on the guitar that riff because it's pretty easy to play and it's so rock and roll, you know, and it's yeah. So like one of the first riffs I learned how to play. Yeah. And. I remember just saying to myself, oh, my God, I've got to try to figure out that solo. And, like, the solo is just, like, pure frenetic pull-offs and stuff and, you know, just these chromatic, like, patterns going up the neck. And it was just frenzy, you know. And at the end of it, you're just like, this is, like, amazingly great, you know. And I remember seeing... you know, I remember seeing uh, uh, at Wembley that whole Taylor Hawkins, Dave Grohl play with uh, uh, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, and going, "Oh my God, that how, how awesome is that? Like to to not only be in a great rock band that can play Wembley, but you're so important that even the two rock gods are going to come play with you, right? <laughs> you know, like the you know and." You know, a little side note about Woodland Hills, where I where I live. Taylor Hawkins came up to my dad and I at a burger joint one day, and just was like, "Hey, how how are the burgers here?" I was like, "Oh, they're great." And you know, we sort of did a fist bump, and he walked away. And I turned to my dad and I go, "That's the guy I was just telling you about." Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's the guy who said. That's the drummer who sang rock and roll at Wembley. And my dad's like, "What?" Uh, that's nice. R.I.P. Uh, rest in peace, Taylor Hawkins. Yeah, rest in. peace. Yeah. Rest in peace. What a what a great great musician. So we should mention Ian Stewart really brought along uh, Rolling Stones, you know, uh, piano player. But he was helping out the engineering and the mixing. But they they brought him to play some piano on this one too, right? 
Well, he was the, um, as I understand it, he was the road manager for the Stones. I'm like, he, he was a founding member of the Stones. They obviously needed a killer piano part that was in the style of that, you know, uh, Little Richard kind of thing. Right, right, and, right. Um, he was there managing the truck. He was like the he was sort of like the manager of the truck. Okay, the, so the he was sort of truck, like the right, engineer. The truck, right. Yeah, he was the Rolling Stones mobile truck, sort of like in charge of the thing. Well, you know, because I think while he wasn't road managing the Stones or whatever, I mean, I'm sure he's he had. Uh, I'm sure he had an, um, you know, a, t- a ton of different duties over the time that he was with the Stones because he was with them for for a long time. Right. You know, but at that point he was like. And and I know that Paige had a had a history with them. You know they had played together, so it was sort of like, oh my god, you're here. Yeah, you play piano. <laughs> Let's do. It. You're playing piano on this. That's great. Still play it. Yeah. You know? Yep. All so, right. So, so now that's that's so cool how that happened. It is. All right. So uh, Robert Plant wrote the words uh, to this next one after reading a book on Scottish history. And we talked about the, the the female vocal on this. We did recently. I I, I know you listened to it, or Alpha. Absolutely. Our friend Rat Bastard did a Sandy Denny episode, and this song loomed large. So let's listen to the Battle of the Queen of Light took her bow, and then she turned to go. Prince of Peace embraced the gloom. I walk the night guest vocalist to ever sing on a Zeppelin record and it's really like a duet but Ralph like me when I was little I had no idea who that was or I didn't even think I paid attention or cared who that was which is a shame because she was great obviously Sandy well she had such a short life yeah you know and I think as Rat pointed out is how prolific she was in such a short period of time yeah yeah because she died in 78 1978 yeah she she died in 78 but I think when she joined Fairport Convention, she just sort of cranked out a ton of stuff, like, right, right, like right. back to back. And I think this track really propelled her career too. Like it, all of a sudden, she had solo work. She had all kinds of stuff that was coming on the heels of it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Good for her because it's it's great and good on them for recognizing and bringing her on board. You know, and it's like a perfect. She's just like a perfect foil for a plant. Yeah, and it was it was sort of a it was. It was Plant's idea. He really wanted the town crier kind of response. Like he was the narrator of this epic battle of good and evil, and 
she was the one that went in and spoke for the people and, you know, right. put down your weapons, you know. And, <laughs> That's it. You know, and it, it was, it, but it's just so beautiful. Their voices work so beautifully together. Yep, they do. And they overlap each other so well. And I think, I think Plant gave her very little instruction. I think he gave her a little bit of instruction on how to, how to come in on something. But other than that, it was just sort of like a normal, she knocked it out in like 45 minutes at Island. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. I mean, she went in and her session was just, she was like in and out. Yep. <laughs> That's how yeah. you do it. Well, she was a pro. All right. So now we get arguably the most famous rock song of all time. You know, Ralph, I, I was amazed to find that, that it was never a, a chart hit, really, because it was never released as a single to the general right. public officially. Right. But probably uh, played more on rock radio than uh, the most played song ever on rock radio. Everyone knows it. Let's listen to a little bit of the beginning of Stairway. Like you were saying, even though this is a this is a Page Plant song, but John Paul Jones decide he made a decision not to not to play bass in the whole beginning part, but to add those recorders, and it just became such a such a big part of this song, you know. And it added, uh, he, he, yeah, he added it so really does. It. Well, he he does play bass in the song, right? And later, he does later play, on, right when it comes in, yeah, yeah. and he does play uh, the Horner electric uh, piano. And he plays these killer low end parts, and when they come in, they really you really start to feel like the what was missing in terms of that bottom. But what is so amazing about this song, in my opinion, is the arrangement, the the sound, the tone of the production, and the arrangement. It's one of those songs where just about every cardinal rule was broken, you know, <laughs> like, for, like you know, like the drums just, don't come in till four after four minutes into the song before the drums come in. Right. <laughs> well, let's just let's yeah, let's talk about tempo. Right. Like if you look at how it gradually speeds up. Right. The song starts at around 71 BPM, 71 and a half. 
by the time that you're by the time that you hit that pre-solo section, you're at 98 BPM. You're in at the solo at 102. Oh wow! Right, you're coming out of the solo at a, like 102 BPM, right? And then, and then it falls back down to earth, and it ends with that, you know. And she's buying a stairway to heaven. You know, so you literally go on a musical journey. Right. You, you know, you've got seven verses, you've got these incredible transitions, and you have the transitions like in four different places, and you and and then you have this fanfare to the solo, like you have this like da 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 da. da. It's like they're announcing the solo. Like here comes the solo. Yeah. It's like yeah, that's gonna play. I'll have that playing underneath. <laughs> <laughs> not that like like no one's heard it but you know you know what i was thinking yeah. also good it's crazy when you think of uh you know at that time they were starting to play like album cuts they called it aor right but mm-hmm. it still took some you know some balls and some bravery of people to play to look at the song and say oh i'm gonna play you know we're gonna play this song you know whereas oh, it yeah. used to be what it's longer than three minutes you know how are we supposed right. to play this song so right and it, they want and radio wanted an edit and they're like sorry this is what no, you get oh my god <laughs> you know and they stuck to their guns and i think the no singles thing for this track i mean because there were singles that were put out you know right uh, um but the fact that they didn't release this as a single was a brilliant move because it drove the album sales. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. That was it. Well, when you th- like you said, they're man- they they were a band that was managed as 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 wild as they were and everything. They you know they pretty much did everything right as far as their career. Right up to one thing we didn't mention about John ba- John Bonham, uh, 1980 died mm-hmm. in 1980 in his early 30s. I always thought it was, you know, good on Zeppelin to be this biggest, the biggest band in the world and everything. That's it. Bonham's dies. That's it. The band's done. You know, we're done. He's yeah. One fourth the band, and good for them. You know. Yeah. No, I think it, it, obviously the way they all sort of gelled together. You know, Led Zeppelin really was all four of them. Right. And. Yeah. What was interesting, you know, and it, it sort of plays out even in the album title with the whole four symbols thing, you know, like it wasn't one symbol that represented four people. It was four individual symbols, each with its own character and its own, you know, right, right, secret, you know, meaning, yep. you know, as one cohesive whole. And there, there were even times when, and Paige was like, and Magic is the fifth member of the band. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they, they really did. You know, Led Zeppelin was the four of them, and the heart of the band really. John Bonham, really, God. And there's so much more to talk about in terms of John Bonham, but there, yeah, there is. Um, all right, so you flip the side over. This is my favorite. I think you know th- there became a thing where I feel like. The first side of the record was like the hits or the ones everyone knew. And even though there's only eight sides, there's four songs each side, but the second side was the more deeper cuts side, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I yeah. love, this is probably, this could be my favorite song. Misty Mountain Hop might be my favorite Zeppelin song ever. And I don't know why, I just love this song so yeah, much. Yeah, it bounces. It's got such a funky, cool bounce. And his drumming, and also John Bonham's drumming in this, is just a deceptively awesome. mammoth, right? All right, let's listen to a little bit of Misty Mountain Hop. 
Uh, yeah, those yeah. drums. I think I really think this record, like being uh, being such a big part of my childhood, made me. I became a a drummer snob. Like like I I don't think I I could ever mm-hmm. play in a band with a drummer that didn't hit the drums hard. <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's like there there is good drummers that don't hit hard, but I just you know I I, I like need that. And and not just that, but he played these beautiful ghost notes in between stuff. Yeah. yeah and yeah, he yeah. knew how to shift the emphasis and also stay in the pocket in four four for you as you were doing cool things over top of it. And what's great about Misty Mountain Hop here is where rhythmically it's Robert Plant's melody that does the whole rhythmical like shifting you know he's the the displacement rhythmically is not in the guitar lick like on black dog it's in robert plant's melody where he comes in oh right the emphasis is constantly shifting over the 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 measures vocally right Right, and so you see this happening with all of them taking these uh turns you know being able to play in some cool different time signature over Bonham holding it down and it gives it that bouncy fun thing and it's like what's the chorus you know it's like they're playing the same thing (laughs) you know they're playing the same piano and guitar hook but they're they're doing something different rhythmically you know it's like a resolve you know because the verse has got all these cool this rhythmical tension that you know is really being supported and enabled by Bonham. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That that's a great and and yeah, you know what? We haven't even talked about lyrics so much, but yeah, and and there are you know obviously some of this stuff there you know is a fantasy lyrics and stuff like that. Uh, that's something that mm-hmm. people could make fun you know would would make fun of them over time. This is great because it's just really about a love in like near, near London. And, and he's really just sort of talking about observing it. And I guess, I think what I like about this too, is there's a little sense of fun in this one and sense of fun, sense of humor, which they had too, which, which a, a band, you know, sometimes a band like that, people would overlook and say, Oh, they're so like serious about everything. But no, they, they had a good sense of humor and, and a sense of fun about themselves too. I, you know, yeah, no, there is a lot of humor. Yeah. There's a, yeah, there's they so much humor theater. in what they were doing. <laughs> right. No, there's a ton of cheeky humor. Exactly, and, exactly, yeah. Uh, taking the piss out of stuff. And um, I think, you know, yeah, the, I th- there's definitely a reference to the Tolkien world with the Misty Mountains and all of that, but right, it's not right, really right. about any of that. It's really about this sort of, you know, Hyde Park, you know, bust, I guess. There was some kind of pot rally or something. Yeah, yeah you know, crowds and, of people sitting on the grass with yeah. flowers in their hair said, hey, boy, do you want to score? <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> great. You know, so I mean, I I think at the time that really was a part of the fabric, right? Like, you know, the seventies there was a lot of tension in between the hippie movement and riot at concerts and you know cops coming in, and so there was a real and even Zeppelin they had their own intense entourage and and stuff. Oh, yeah. So there, you know, they I think the band themselves they had great humor. And you know, kept it light, and you know that's what I what what I love about their music is that it's it, it really is joy. There's just so much. This song is so joyful. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. agreed you know, 100%. they're 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 creating a joyful song out of like something that could that could have gone wrong. Right. 
All right, and now we get probably the strangest song on the record, The Dark. And and I'll tell you, Ralph, I didn't realize it till doing this that it was called Four Sticks because John Bonham played it with four sticks, two sticks in each hand, right? <laughs> I had no right. idea. <laughs> right. That's and, when it finally worked. Oh, okay. Okay. He <laughs> right, couldn't yeah. get it together, and then all of a sudden, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it when There's we come some out crazy, of the track. Yeah, There's some crazy time, time signatures going on here. Let's listen to Four yeah. Sticks. Well, yeah, I mean, Page really wanted something abstract and eclectic on the record because he was pushing the boundaries. But from what I read in February of 71, the night before they actually did this recording, uh, Bonham saw Ginger Baker pitted against Elvin Jones in a drumming duel. Oh, geez. And he wanted, he was inspired to come up with something that would impress Ginger Baker. Okay. So he went back. And he just sort of worked up this thing where he had the two, he had the the four sticks, you know, two in each hand, and he was doing something, you know, basically complicated against the his you know his tom, his floor, and his hi hat. Right. And it just sort of came together, and you know what's crazy is how they're all listening to each other, and you've got you know plant and the guitar parts and everything just sort of vibing off of this rhythm and they they pull it off I right mean, as eclectic right. and weird as it is exactly, exactly they still yeah. pull it off yep and it's still good enough to make the record yep you know <laughs> and and i i read it's it, it was such a, tr- a tricky song for him to play they only played it live once in uh, denmark on yeah. their uh, 1970 european tour and that was it <laughs> so yeah, there's uh, a bunch of, there's a bunch of stuff like that in the zeppelin catalog that right, only right. got you know that you know Misty Mountain is an, you know another one that like ended up on a lot of Robert Plant you know in his career right right you know after Zeppelin but was something that wasn't necessarily played with Zeppelin well they were a band they they cra- they would craft stuff in the studio but they weren't a band that wanted to bring in extra people live right they won't they wanted to just be them playing live and right and so I mean, right. you know some stuff it just wouldn't uh, it wouldn't translate and and you know you know something that's interesting about John Bonham's son is that his Led Zeppelin experience and evening, he does bring in a lot of musicians to the stage to recreate the recordings. Because he's recreating, which, which is fair. Yeah. I think it's fair because he's not trying to be Led Zeppelin. He's, not, he's trying to right. Re- he's not trying to be another tribute band. He's exactly. literally trying to pay, you know, tribute and honor to the music, to the music, right? To the, the recorded right. music, yeah. and which is so great about his show. 
He's touring I hear it's right great. now, yeah, so I hear people it's great. should go check it out. Yep, awesome. All right, so Page and Plant, I guess we're inspired by who for this one, for going to California? Joni Mitchell. Joni, which she gets mentioned all the time on this podcast because she really did uh, like inspire and influence a lot of people. And she had a song called California, and it's it's great because in the song, Plant kind of plays the part of this guy who's he's, he's looking to leave his no good woman behind to make a fresh start in California and maybe hopefully find a girl like, like Joni, you know? <laughs> Right. <laughs> Which is awesome. But uh, let's listen to Going to California. Spend my days with a woman unkind. Smoke my stuff and drink all my wine. Made up my mind. Make a new start Going to California with an aching In my heart Someone told me There's a girl out there With love in her eyes and flowers In her hair one of those ones where I think as a kid listening to this, I really couldn't appreciate how beautiful a song like this is like later. Like now I was listening to it earlier tonight in like headphones and like, just like, Oh my God, it's so beautiful, you know? And I, I didn't appreciate that when I was younger. Yeah, no, it really is one of the, one of the best acoustic songs that they did. And it brought, you know, Paige to tears, you know, thinking about Joni, he's he's gone on record to say, you know. Sitting in a park in Paris, friends, reading the news, and it sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance. That was just a dream some of us had. Still a lot of lines to see, but I wouldn't want to stay here. It's too old and cold and settled in its ways here. All the California and Laurel Canyon really was like this place to aspire to come out of right and right. you know they were young you know they were like 23 i know when, i know Isn't when this crazy? was written <laughs> and they you know i guess what plant was saying about this was as he was sort of reflecting on back you know like when he just started and going to california and how crazy it was and how insane things were and you know how he really just you know wanted to write about you know aspiring to be you know a great songwriter and to have you know a new start and you know there's just so much beauty in this song it's one of the classics that has stayed in his show and i've seen him do it like i i got to see robert plan a couple of times in the last couple of years on his, on his recent tours and see them perform this and it's it's oh, incredible nice. yeah. it's a timeless piece yep all right, so now we get to the final uh, when the levee breaks, Oof. which is actually I didn't realize the lyrics are is actually an old blues by a blues artist Memphis Mini from 1927 uh, is yeah. what the lyrics are based on the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. Um, but yeah, and you know what? I didn't I I didn't realize how much 
this this song is like produced like crazy. There's so much crazy stuff going on in this, right? It's like you're you're immediately yeah. hypnotized by that drum sound, right? Uh, bottom sound, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there's so much more going on in this, right? There's a ton of stuff going on in this. There's yeah. you know the these these open G twelve electric twelve string played with a slide. You know, there's all this stuff going on. Yeah, and it just kind of throbs. And I guess they slowed it. They recorded the music and then slowed it down a little. And then uh, Plant sang over that. Yeah, I don't know the full story. Like, from what I understand, this is the only track that didn't uh, get remixed. It's the one that survived the Sunset Sound LA Mix sessions. And so when you listen to it, it's slowed down. It sounds like it's an F, even though the, the guitars are tuned. And when they were recorded, and if you were in the room with those guitars, it would have sounded like it was open G. Right. So, uh, but it sounds like open F. And that's because uh, it's down at like, you know, a right. whole step. And so that, that slower sludginess gives it this dark groove, this swampy groove. Oh, my God. And it's yeah. part of the mystique. And it's just badass. It's, it's bad. let's so to, bad. Let's listen to a little bit. That's probably one of my favorite songs on this on this record. It's so badass. And I remember, um, yeah, there's just, like I said, when I'm listening to it now, I realize, like, I realize, like, all the different verses, they do something a little different to his vocals every time, right? They got, like, a little yeah. different. And I guess the drums, I had read, I'd, I, you know, I'd read that they recorded it, like, in a stairwell, right? They had his drums and yes. they put the mics up high. Mm-hmm. But yep. they also, the engineer, uh, Andy Johns, also ran them through this echo machine they had called a Brinson Echo yeah, Rec. Well, the the Benson Echo Rec 2 was, it, it looks like a lunchbox, and it's it's a, a tape machine-based uh, echo. Right. So it's like a big cylinder with like four tape heads, 
and really complicated device and they're expensive the vintage ones and right. it was really it was championed by Pink Floyd so uh, okay, okay. like Pink Floyd used the Benson Echo Rec a lot and it was Jimmy's and so Jimmy brought it in and added it to a ton of stuff on this record it's also all over Battle of Evermore it's you know it, it's all over this record oh, okay. it, it, think of it like this this big ass delay pedal that was laying around that they ran everything through. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you listen to the overall sonic clarity of the drums, you instantly almost like go, whoa, like, what am I listening to? Am I listening to Beastie Boys right now? Or am oh, I right. listening to When the Levy Breaks? Because well, I literally feel the Beastie Boys coming in yeah. when I hear that, <laughs> you know, that the song start, you know, right. because it's. It's so much a part of, you know, rhyming and stealing. And so when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, God, that thing is so badass. The the mics, what's cool about how they mic'd the stairwell was how Paige really wasn't afraid of doing that whole ambient mic thing. Like, he was all about it. And he had learned that by being a studio rat and being right, the session right, guitar right. player. And so he learned all of this stuff and brought it. Like, he knew, okay, you don't have to stick a microphone in front of every single thing. You know, there was no kick drum mic on that. I know. <laughs> because you didn't there need it because you had John Bonham's foot. <laughs> there was literally two mics running through some compressors. And they were you know, and they were apart. Like, the, the stairwell was, like, three stories high. Right. And one of the mics was on the second story, and the other mic was, like, on the third. You know, so they were, you know, they were really recording the room and the ambience of the room. And that's where the whole environment of the play comes in, you know, of the place of Headley Grange, you know, the, which is now somebody's home, right? So like when they went back to do that part and it might get loud and Jamie Page was revisiting the joint, he was, you know, revisiting somebody's private home now. It wasn't <laughs> like this place that was, you know, a rental rehearsal place or studio anymore it was right. literally filled with people's you know personal effects and he got all emotional because you know that that place really was a big part of why the record was so successful was the sound of the place you could hear the you album. could hear the place and the record right you could hear the sound you could hear the rooms yeah, yeah. which is uh yeah it's amazing let's do it and you know one thing i remember uh reading that uh prince was a huge zeppelin fan and he had said uh about just jimmy page was a ma like a, as as great or whatever beside from him being a guitar player people uh uh, have to remember what an artist he was with sound and like putting sound together and it was so awesome, yeah you know, and, and, and for Prince to say that that's exactly. a big nod exactly. because that's Prince I mean. was the kind of guy that could run everything like he could have his hands on the tape machine hands right. on the console right. he could have set the whole thing up he, he's writing the parts he's hitting play right. you know he was the guy that could do it all like and so was Paige in a lot of ways you know right. Paige right was arranging this stuff. He was coming up with the vision. He put the band together. He came up with the idea for everybody to live in. You know, he came up with the idea to go write somewhere and then rehearse in the, the place and then use other studios to tighten it up and fin finish it, you know? Right. And from start to finish, they really only spent about two months actual time. There was about, I think, five months of elapsed time 
but it was about two months of actual work. So they really knocked it out fast. Yeah. And yeah, they yeah. and they came out with like 14 tracks in the can, not just these eight. You meant you mentioned that they did a lot of stuff different on this. On they they processed his vocals differently on each verse. Right. On this right. track. Yeah. And I I never noticed it as much until I was really paying attention to it. They did backwards echo stuff, you know, on the harmonica. Right, right, you know, right. Like, so all of those, you know, s- sound signatures that ultimately became a part of, you know, Paige's production palette or toolkit, you know, they're, they're on this track. Yep. It is. It's a tour de force. Uh, <laughs> and that's it. We did it, Ralph. See, we brought a you brought a classic record that we thought had been talked about, and and we talked about it, and it was great. It awesome. was great. You were the you were the right person to do this, I think. And uh, oh, thank you. I was I surprised. Love, love I, I was surprised it. you picked it, but now it, it obviously makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense. And uh, thanks was, for being open to it. You, yeah. Your show is so indie. You know, <laughs> no, and no, I, you no. know, and I love all the indie people that you bring to it. But you know, every once in a while, you wanna, you wanna try something that is represents the, uh, yeah, the antithesis of indie. I've even done jazz. I've done jazz now, Ralph. So I'm pretty much I'll do anything, country, awesome. jazz. You know, bring it on. That's what I say. Bring it on. So, uh, so Ralph, anything? What's going on over in uh, Los Angeles? Anything going on? Anything you want to point people towards? Anything uh, exciting or something you want to turn people on to? No, I'm, you know, I'm probably going to write something about uh, this, this album. So, you know, look for that. Um, I'm going to self-publish something. Oh, okay, nice. Um, And uh, other than that, life is great. And, you know, just glad to still be playing music. My 10-year-old is playing drums and Ah. learning Zeppelin and Green Day and Foo Fighters and all kinds of stuff. So that's... um, now you have a drum. Now you know what. My th- want to hear something funny. My 34 year old is started playing drums. Corey, my older daughter Corey, just got. Oh a, my god. She always resented me because I. She swears that which I, which I don't remember this, but she swears that she asked me for a drum set when she was little, and I said no. But I don't remember that. But I maybe I did. <laughs> well, but <laughs> I when he said that he wanted drums, I, I got the quiet heads, and I got. I also got him. I got him to. I got him initially like a, a mesh head kind of quiet thing where he okay, plays with headphones, right. <laughs> which is still loud. But then we ended up getting him a full set oh, with uh, the quieter head so that he can you know learn on a full set. And he's about two years into it, and he's doing great. So. Oh, nice. Awesome. All right. So uh, that's great. And uh, don't forget, guys, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. It's at that record got me high. Also, that Facebook group got me high. On Twitter, I'm still on Twitter. I, I got rid of my personal Twitter, but I'm still we're still on there at TRGMH Podcast. Elon, I don't think Elon's gonna have anything to do. I don't think he listens to the podcast, so I think we're okay. Uh, you can email me at uh, TRGMH33 at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you want to become a patron, like like Ralph, Ralph is a patron of the show. That's right. And uh, you too can become a patron. Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash TRGMH. How much has it added to your life, Ralph? How much has it enriched your life? A little bit. Right? I love it. I, I love it. I, oh, and, you know, I, I support you, and I'm glad to support you. And, I really appreciate you know, it. I know how difficult this is, and I know that, you know, you're, you know, it's hard to monetize a podcast. So, like, if you love what Rob's doing, you know, join the Patreon. There you go. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks again, Ralph. This was awesome. You were a great guest. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. I'm Rob Elba. We are out of here. Oh.